When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's also available in video and print formats. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. If you want to understand how the human mind works, is it necessary to know anything about the brain? Well, you might think that's simply a ridiculous sort of question, analogous to trying to understand heredity without DNA, or how comets move while ignoring Newton's laws. But for years, and to some extent still, many philosophers of mind have maintained that the mysteries of human cognition were independent of our particular brain biology, much like a computer program is fundamentally independent from its physical hardware. Not so UC San Diego philosopher Patricia Churchland, who, in her engaging, plain-speaking way, has long been an advocate of not only formally recognizing, but to a large extent actually embracing, our underlying neurobiology. Uh, You know, Francis and I used to talk about this sort of thing, and one day he said to me, you know, in science, and in neuroscience in particular, you really can't see in any meaningful way beyond about five or ten years. That's about it. Um, And I think he'd come to that after many years of pondering how much they couldn't see in 1954. But but you have this wonderful example, actually, in your book when you compare what, what of course, became DNA, but the the, the search for some sort of mechanized device for genetic encoding against protein folding. And you go, this is the easy problem, and that's the hard one, and it wound up being 180 degrees uh, in the other direction. Yeah. It did, and, and he was very fond of that example because he wanted to, to make the point that y- your intuitions are really informed by what you already believe. Right. They can't very well be informed by the truth about the future that lives in Plato's heaven because there ain't no such thing. <laughs> and and so, so it's, it's all about your intuitions, and your intuitions are going to be very, very hedged. Right. You just and, don't know. And based on the past, which may or and may not have anything to do with uh, what, what the future yeah. has to do. Yeah. We, he liked to talk about the history of science in that way. Jim, I never could talk to him about such things. But hmm. Francis really was a big, big interest of his. Uh, yeah, he was very interesting. Must have been wonderful for you. you? Oh, it was wonderful for me. Yeah, it was an amazing thing. I mean, meeting him, you know, I mean, this is probably part of your thing that you want to know how that happened, but it was an, a funny thing. Paul and I were at the Institute for Advanced Study for a year in Princeton. Right. And I was invited to a meeting at Hopkins. And so I went off, and there was Francis Crick. And I gave a talk 
basically saying that philosophers have got to start paying attention to neuroscience because if you want to understand the mind, you've got to understand the brain. So when was this? What year was this? And that would have been about 1982. Okay. And he almost fell off his chair because he'd been trying to get neuroscientists in Cambridge when they were still there to talk to him about this, and they wouldn't. <laughs> and um, so he thought this was terrific. And so then he was a big part of the reason why we ended up at UC San Diego. Huh. So, so we were all close friends kind of very quickly and right at the start. And it, was, it made it really, really interesting and fun. But let's back up a little bit. So yeah. you have these unorthodox views seems to me, you, you plural, you yeah. and Paul, have yeah, these yeah. unorthodox views about um, uh, the, the relevance and, and importance of neuroscience to studying philosophy of mind. Yeah. And where did this come from? Uh, and, and, and then tell me a little bit about the, the reaction that your colleagues have had to, to that. Well, I think it's, it's always kind of hard when you look into your own personal history and you wonder where things came from. But I think basically the thing was this, that I really was in philosophy because I wanted to understand such things as the nature of knowledge and consciousness and decision making. And I thought that's what it was all about. Except it turned out it wasn't. It was all about words. And so... By the time we had jobs in, in Winnipeg, we were both really very frustrated by the idea that philosophers thought they could learn something about the nature of these processes by talking about the words that are supposed to apply to them. Right. And so, you know, in a great way, Winnipeg was very liberating. And that's because they didn't expect too much from us. Right, so you had some freedom. So we had freedom to do a lot. And nobody thought it was desperately strange when I said, you know, I really need to understand the anatomy of the brain, so I'm going to the medical school. And I'm going to talk to the guys in the anatomy department and see if I can learn something, right. which is what I did. And the people in the medical school were also, I think, kind of low-key, smart as all get out, but slightly low-key. And so instead of being very snooty and saying, you know, well, what do you know? You don't know anything. They said, oh, this is wonderful. Of course you must understand the anatomy. So come and take all the courses that the medical students are taking in neuroscience. And enjoy yourself. Did you actually have to get your hands dirty so as well? Did, did. You, did you do all that stuff? I did, did all you? the lab stuff. And the most monumental day for me was when we'd finished looking at cells and neurons under microscopes and they wheeled in this big trolley and we all got our own human brain. So can you mention holding it in your hand? Yes. I mean, and so they came in these Tupperware pots yeah of formaldehyde. We wore gloves because then we knew about these strange diseases like Kuru that you might still pick up from a brain. So we all had to wear gloves, which I was disappointed in because I wanted to hold it right. <laughs> anyway, so out comes the brain and then we, you know, were instructed about how to properly dissect the human brain. It, it was the most magical moment for me. Yeah. This was somebody. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and wow, whoever it was had done marvelous things, maybe been a farmer and maybe been a pilot. 
And there it was. And so the idea that we could understand what made it possible for people to do those things was just so absorbing to both me and Paul. I was going to ask, so Paul took these courses too? He, he did, didn't, he, did actually. Because he's a weenie, he's a guy, right? I, no, no, it was really, I think that kind of one was enough because we had two small kids, we were right. both teaching. Right. And I think that to be perfectly fair, I was willing to be a bit more of a slacker in my courses than he was. Hmm. I was willing to, because I was spending so much time at the medical school, I sometimes had to teach with very little preparation. And I think he was a little more conscientious than I was, actually. So he doesn't, so he, but he never held a brain in his hands before. Well, or later, maybe. So the bad news is that one day I brought it home, which I wasn't supposed to do. But I wanted him to see it. Yeah, no, well, you're a loving wife. That's what loving wives do. They bring home a brain to their husband. That's what I'm sure my wife will do this shortly. Uh, and and my son, I think, then was three, yeah. and was four, this? my daughter was two. They are both neuroscientists. I was going to say, so what was their reaction to, the, to uh, this? Well, they, they could see that we thought it was terribly exciting and beautiful and impressive. They thought the smell was pretty bad. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but anyway... But they overcame uh, that. They went into neuroscience anyway. But so. they did. They did. <laughs> So, so the magical, wonderful thing about Winnipeg really was that they let me do these things. And if I had been at a really high class place, like if I'd been at Harvard, I very much doubt that medical school would have been quite so welcoming in this way. Now, I could be wrong, right. but I really think so. And certainly the philosophy department would have put much more pressure on me to publish, and that means to publish mainstream stuff. Sure. Whereas in Winnipeg, they thought, well, okay, if you think this is important, maybe it is. Great. And it was a kind of freedom that was just priceless. And I will, and the dean of, of the faculty, you know, he could have lowered the boom on me. Never did. He always encouraged me. It's amazing, actually, in retrospect. And, and so you continued, both of you, uh, you and Paul, continued in this, in this way, perhaps not quite so rigorously hands-on, as it were, but mm. certainly yeah, yeah. from uh, a, a neuroscientific perspective, and you wrote neurophilosophy, and you were yeah. very much uh, out there as, oh, yeah. uh, as expositors of this idea of the brain causing the mind, and yeah. unabashedly forthright. What was the response as, as you started to do more and more of this from your, from your colleagues in, in philosophy? I'm guessing that many of them did not run out and, and, and enroll in medical school courses in neuroanatomy. They hated it. <laughs> they hated it from the viscera all the way up. It was funny. Now, not absolutely every, everyone, sure. but many people had the view that even if there is no non-physical soul, you still ha cannot explain psychological phenomena ever in neurobiological terms because the gap is too great. And so amongst philosophers, there was this idea of what they called excuse me, the autonomy of psychology. And what that meant was that you can think of cognition and all that fancy high-function stuff as software running on the hardware. Now, if you want to understand, say, a word processing uh, program, you're not going to pay attention to the hardware, so the argument ran. Right. So why should we pay any attention to the brain? So you were just wasting your time. That you're was... wasting your time. It's very charming, it's very nice that you like it, but it's a waste of time. 
And interestingly, this idea is still pervasive, especially in the US. So I'll give you an example. Colin McGinn has just published a review of Touching a Nerve in um, the New York Review of Books. He hates everything in it, but in particular, he reaffirms this idea that psychology is autonomous with respect to neuroscience. You're never going to get anywhere. And does he just pronounce that? Does yes. he give any, He doesn't yes. give any no. justification for no. it? He just no. says... It's a... Well, what people did by way of justification for it was kind of interesting. And part of the justification consisted in saying that in the case of humans, our beliefs, our desires, all of our cognition is kind of rife with linguistic stuff. Mm. That we are fundamentally and essentially linguistic creatures. So this is the Dan Dennett. This argument. is Dan Dennett. Right. This is Jerry Fodor. Jerry right. Fodor thought we are all born with a language of thought, and that learning, say English, consists in translating from your language of thought. And so they thought that cognition was inherently and intrinsically and absolutely linguiform. Right. Whereas neurons, they can't possibly be linguiform. So how could that work? But here, here's my confusion as yeah. somebody who makes no pretenses of being in the field whatsoever. But I think we're not talking about you know, the, the, the 1870s or 1880s. We're talking about the 1970s or 1980s. And so, and so even without any of the spectacular developments that have happened subsequently in terms of diagnostic techniques, yes. in terms of real-time brain scans yes. and, and EEGs, PET scans, fMRI, all that kind of stuff, even without any of that, people were very, very well aware of the fact that you have a pain, you take drugs, you take LSD, you hallucinate, yes. you, you, if, if you're, there are some drugs that make you feel happy, there are some drugs that make you feel sad. So, so the, the idea that we, we were already manipulating the hardware that was mm. resulting in different states of, of mind was, uh, was already very, very prevalent in, in the public consciousness. Been. So, so yeah. the idea that it, these things are completely unrelated, I mean, you might, you might put up barriers somewhere and say you can't describe everything, but the mm, idea mm, that, that mm. these are completely autonomous regions strikes me as just so counter to, to our experience. That, that's, yeah. that's what confuses me. Yeah, it was bizarre. It was bizarre, and I've kind of tried to, this is going to be a bit of a digression, but I've kind of tried to understand it, because if you go back to the 19th century, there was Helmholtz understanding very well that events in the brain were really all about psychological phenomena, and proposing that behind, for example, recognition of a face, there had to be massive amounts of non-conscious processing. Right. And some of the English philosophers understood that also, and they started a journal called Mind, which was supposed to be experimental philosophy, and that's actually the word that they used. Right. Well, what happened? What happened was psychology sort of branched off, and, the, and, and then there was logic. Now, you will remember that logic really got off the ground with piano and piano's axioms. Sure for arithmetic in the 19th century. What became the most powerful sort of um, intellectual movement in a way in England and to some degree elsewhere was formal logic. All of a sudden this thing which had been stuck in the Aristotelian framework right. 
for thousands of years, all of a sudden we had propositional calculus, we had quantificational calculus, you could do all these amazing things. And then there was the Gödel result, and right. there were all, it was the most exciting thing going. Right, and you had all this stuff in these guys in Cambridge with their analytic and, philosophy and all. That's that. right, and it was all about logic. And then people had this idea that, of course, reasoning is really doing this. It's going through all of these procedures, and and at about the same time, of course, we have Chomsky beginning to think about language, and he thought about language not as a biologist, not as a psychologist, as a but as a mathematician. Okay. And so he thought of it in terms of following certain algorithms. And he proposed, as you know, that there was the semantic part and there was the syntactic part. This was all about algorithms. And how did they get together? Well, somehow. And it it sent philosophy then between this love for logic, and God knows I had that love too, because it's such a powerful, beautiful machine, and then this idea that it's actually going to help us understand psychology, and it did not. But this is, this strikes me as very That's a historical guess. I'm not an historian, so I don't really know. you're speculating, and that's the whole point of this conversation. Yeah. Or at least not the whole point, but, but one, yeah, yeah. One, one aspect of it. It's, it strikes me as, 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 as very analogous, if, if not actually equivalent, to a computer science type of way of looking yes. at the world. And this, oh, yes. this gets back to your software-hardware yes. distinction. It's really yeah. formal systems, formal yeah. rigorous logic. It's almost like you're programming. That's you're programming right. through language yeah. and maybe a meta-language or something. Yeah. But that's the way pe- the tools yeah. that people are starting to bring to bear. Okay, so that's And one this- of the psychologists who was very important and very close to Jerry Fodor was a Canadian, Zenon Polition. And, and it was his absolute, firm, unshakable conviction that all of cognition was essentially symbol processing. Hmm. And I used to say, look, Zenon, how can that be for pain? How can that be for visual Vision. perception? Yeah. <laughs> how can that possibly be? Right. And he said, well, we start with beliefs and desires and problem solving, and then you'll see. So it was a program. Yeah. But it was, I think, in retrospect, as you rightly see, as we see it now, I mean, you think, how, it's like thinking that mice come into existence by spontaneous generation. I mean, how, why would you ever think such a thing? Yeah. It's a fairly basic assumption to their whole. It's, it's it all very well huge. and good to have a, have a program, but um, it's a curious assumption. To very, be very strange. Yeah. And it still is very pervasive within philosophy in America. As I said, it's changing a lot in England. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it, it was pervasive. And so we were just total outsiders from all of that. We were just biting their heels as far as they were concerned. You know, we were wasting our time. Neuroscience was never going to say have anything to say about the nature of cognition. And our view was, how can it help but? <laughs> right. And when did, when did it start to change? When did you start getting, getting some traction? Because the world now is, I'm, I'm sure there are, there are people on, on various sides of the divide. I want to explore that a little bit further with sure. psychology and so forth. But, but the situation is very different now than it the was. The situation then, so. is very different. And I think that just, it, it really was owed to the great explosion of data in, in neuroscience. And I think people coming to realize that they could actually learn a lot about the nature of knowledge and, say, knowledge consolidation. I mean, here, here are people like Alan Hobson uh, um, d- 
discovering that information is consolidated during deep sleep. Well, this isn't, you know, a, a process like, you know, going through an algorithm and making right. a rational decision. This is just your biology doing stuff while you're in deep sleep. And right. that's why if you've had a head injury and you can't remember recent events, you can still remember events in the in the further distant past. Because they've been consolidated. Uh, and, and, and the idea that the hippocampus, if, if the hippocampal structures are damaged, you can't learn anything new. That's flaming amazing. Yeah. And then I think, too, the, the discovery with both HM and then um, the, uh, the Damasio patient, Boswell, provided the philosophers with an interesting example. So John Locke and many people since then had said, an absolutely essential part of your self-understanding is your autobiographical memory. If you lose that, you're nothing. Not so. Mm. There was Boswell. He had maybe one or two memories from his past. He can't learn anything new. I can play a game of checkers with Boswell. He's very gracious when I meet him. Now, he can't talk about having met me five minutes ago because right. he can't remember that. Right. But he'll comment on this, and he'll ask me if I'd like a drink of water. And he's, He has a well-established character. He has a sense of himself which is diminished, right. but it's not like he's fallen apart. Right. And so it was a way of saying to philosophers, to the young ones at any rate, look, these kinds of neural facts actually bear upon philosophical theses. So you can't just analyze the concept of self as Locke did and say, so it must involve autobiographical memory. Right. Usually it does, but it doesn't always. Right. And, and presumably one response is Locke and, and many people of that generation would uh, one can certainly speculate that they would have acted differently had they been living in our time and Locke they would have been privy to, to... Locke would have. Them. Locke, after all, dissected brains with Thomas Willis. <laughs> Locke I, I would know. have said, oh yeah, okay, so I was wrong about that. This is another thing that they don't tell you when you're an undergraduate, that Locke dissected brain. I mean, I know. I, uh, I know. This is shuffled under the rug somewhere, yeah. presumably. Yeah. So you're participating in some great philosophical tradition. In I fact, discovered that much later, <laughs> I know, and I thought, oh, isn't that wonderful when I did discover it? Yeah. So we're doing a series, as I pointed out to you earlier, on, or not pointed out, as I mentioned to you earlier, um, on cognitive science and psychology. Yes. And talking to fair number of people who straddle that divide because mm. I have become more aware of the nature of that divide and it does seem to be a divide. There are people who are hardcore neuroscientists, they're hardcore cognitive scientists, they believe unequivocally and without any hesitation that there is no distinction between the brain and the mind, there's clearly a subjective aspect to the, mm -hmm. to the, to the mind, but that, that that what we think of as the mind is caused by the brain, that brain states are responsible for, yeah. for whatever feelings, desires, beliefs we have, however complicated that process may right. be. And in fact, they use the word brain. It's actually quite interesting for, for me as a complete stranger to the field. You have people who are on the other side uh, who believe that there is something else there. They don't deny that the brain has some causal effect on mental states, right, but right, they, right. they insert other things. It's incomplete. There are some other aspects. They, they either shirk from looking at um, neurophysiological uh, 
justifications mm. or causes mm. For, mm. for everything or maybe for many things. Mm. And they invariably use the word mind when you speak yeah, to them. Right, and it's right, actually, yeah. it's, it's quite interesting to see what's happened to the field of psychology because almost all of these people are at least formally in psychology departments, although they may be cross-appointed to medical schools or what have you, depending right. on their proclivities. Um, it seems like, from my perspective, this field is in rapid transition sociologically as, the, as these, these fault lines are becoming clearer and more people are coming into play on both sides. Is that an accurate depiction of what's going on? Do you see it somewhat differently? How do you see the change in the field of psychology, the professional discipline of psychology slash cognitive science? Yeah, it's a big question and, and I'm going to simplify, really oversimplify a little bit, but basically I do see it in much the same way that you do. So that within a psychology department, such as ours here at UCSD, there are some people who are really focused at the behavioral level and do brilliant work at that level. For example, how Pashler's work on attention. And uh, he is quite happy to stay at that level because there's still a lot of information that he can mine. But I think he doesn't see it as um, understanding a phenomenon that's unrelated to the brain. I think he sees it as providing additional data and constraints for how somebody like John Henderson, who works on the neurobiology of attention, he sees it as a constraint for the kind of work that John does. So he's, he's adding, he's, he's adding extra, uh, extra information, he's setting I up things. Think so. I would, think so. Wouldn't he want to just go and look at an fMRI wouldn't he want to put some of his patients or some of, some of his experimental behavioral subjects at some point and just say, well, what's actually happening in the brain? I mean, it seems like a yeah. lot of these people, they, they just, no, oh, I don't want to deal with that. You know, I'm not an fMRI type of person. I'm, I'm speculating. But I, I get that sort yeah. of wave of, oh, there's too much of that stuff in our field. We should be doing more behavioral things. I don't know. I mean, uh, I guess it's, you know, one's take on the sociology of this is going to depend on the particular people that you happen to meet. So in the psychology department here, there are people who do precisely that. They put people in the scanner and see what's going right. on when they're paying attention to this or that or right. not paying attention sure. and so forth. Um, and and I, I sort of see the two sides kind of coming closer together. Okay. So one of the people that, whose work I track quite closely in the psychology department, you might think of as a cognitive neurobiologist because he works on self-control and on the specific pathways in the prefrontal cortex and their connection to the reward system and to other subcortical structures. And they do use MR, they also use animals and so forth. And I, so, I see the divide as kind of being um, sort of less pronounced than it was, say, in the 1980s. Right. So the and line is getting fuzzier between them. It maybe. seems to me that that would be true here. On the other hand, I've been at psychology meetings where I have met psychologists who kind of are of the description that you gave, and that is they sort of want to say, look, you know, I am working on the mind, and to understand that, I need to understand the behavioral parameters of whatever it is they're interested in. Right. But that seems to me to be rarer now. And as you say, these things, of course, are not mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. The more behavioral evidence you have, the more that, that, that can be... Uh, that could be added to the great yeah. melting pot of knowledge. It's just there's a difference in saying 
it seems to me I am working on behavioral uh, evidence of, of, of characteristics of the mind or how we right. can understand the mind uh, as, a, as a means of furthering this line of investigation globally yeah. as opposed to saying I am working on behavioral characteristics of the mind which is the only way to understand these things because everyone That's else right. is wasting their time. That's right. And there are still people who, who do want to say that. Um, and it is kind of a throwback still, I think, of this idea that psychology is working on the software. Mm. And why would you take apart your computer if what you wanted to understand is why, why your mail program isn't working? Why would you do that? That's kind of how the mindset. But on the other hand, I think that that is being chipped away yeah. by, by these discoveries. That, Good. I mean, Think of Walter Mischel's marshmallow test that was done in, say, the nineteen. Well, I don't know that. The nineteen nineteen nineties. Well, this is about the kids when you give yeah, them a delayed gratification. Yeah, yeah. You say, you know, yeah. I'll give you one marshmallow right. now or four when I come back in a few minutes. And it turned out when they tracked those kids over long periods of time, the ones that were impulsive. Uh, differed in their career trajectories and in their lifestyles from the ones who had self-discipline. And these kids tended to have, tended to go to college, get a job, have stable relationships, didn't do drugs, statistically speaking, whereas on average these were a little lower on that. 30 years later they get as many of those original subjects as they could and they scan them. And they see interesting differences between the so two what, populations. What they yeah. Well, they see interesting differences in where you would expect it, the prefrontal cortex. So executive, differences executive in levels planning of that, yes. and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Huh. And then other work has recently taken uh, very young children and compared those who live in very stressful conditions and have poor impulse control with those who live in very normal conditions and have relatively good impulse control scan them, and by God, it turns out that the stress is very hard on the PFC. And at a micro level, people like Robert Sapolsky and others have shown that stress, chronically high levels, you've got a lot of, of a stress hormones sloshing around in the brain, it kills neurons, preferentially in the PFC, in the prefrontal cortex. So. So it's one of those wonderful examples where you can see the thread between a high level, as it were, mental operation, self-discipline, or the capacity to delay gratification, and all the way down through the levels of the nervous system. Right. And so I think when graduate students and postdocs and young faculty think about these things, they think, you know, doesn't make any sense anymore to talk right. about the autonomy of the mind. Not just putting up these ridiculous artificial barriers. Yeah. Why would you do that? Right. You know, why would you turn your back on information that's obviously useful? That's just dumb. Right. So, so that's uh, a, a fundamental thesis of your book. But before we get to your book, uh, your recent, your most recent popular book, uh, touching a nerve. Before we get there, uh, I want to say something a little bit potentially provocative, probably won't provoke you, but uh, potentially provocative, about the discipline of philosophy of science mm -hmm, and mm -hmm, philosophy of mm -hmm. mind in general. So, uh, two things to say. Uh, first of all, I'll, I'll start with, uh, with a famous quote by Richard Feynman when he was asked about the merits and the relevance of philosophers of physics, and he said, a philosopher of physics is to a physicist what an ornithologist is to a bird. 
um, which uh, basically means um, they're doing what they're doing, but they don't have any influence on us whatsoever. Yeah. And as I mentioned to you before, I had this somewhat singular experience to be involved in constructing a, mm. a physics research institute. And my attitude was, well, let's not put up these silly little labels of somebody's in the philosophy of physics faculty or the philosophy faculty and somebody else may be in computer science and somebody else is obviously in physics and someone else is in mathematics. Let's try as best we can to look at people as, as contributors towards this overall research effort and uh, perhaps a little bit utopian, but, but the, the motivation was to, to pare away those, those labels and just say, are you somebody who's contributing to this research effort or are you not? Um, so I don't want to get into whether or not that was successful or whether it wasn't successful, but when I listen to you and when I look at your papers and when I, I, I see the sort of person you are, my thought, my personal thought is, this is somebody who's involved in this great pursuit of uh, cognitive science, call it what you will, understanding the brain, understanding uh, why people are the way that they are and how the brain functions and high level and low level and this huge, hugely difficult problem of understanding uh, behavior from a, uh, from a deep level, mm -hmm. from a deep perspective. Um, and so I'm going to come to a question because I understand that when you have these sorts of conversations, you should ask a question every now and then. Um, <laughs> is it, um, what's the point of philosophy of mind? Why do we even have philosophy of mind? Aren't you just uh, a contributor to understanding cognitive science and that's the end of that? Why even have a discipline of philosophy of mind? What is it that philosophers contribute mm. that um, that your neuroscientist colleagues don't contribute. And let me just, before I, before I, 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 I hand it over to you, I'll say something that, that a philosopher of physics tends to say to a physicist, which is one of these things that always rankled me, with me, and I think a lot of physicists, which is a philosopher of physics will say, oh yes, well the physicists work on their theories, but you see, we understand the theories. We work on trying to understand the theories. And if you're a theoretical physicist, you think, what a load of garbage is that? <laughs> <laughs> You're yeah, telling yeah. me that I'm working on developing a theory and I don't understand it and it takes you to be able to come and understand yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. So, so <clears throat> similarly, um, I'm talking to you and I would say, well, what's the role of philosophers of mind? Why do we even have philosophers of mind? Well, it's a, it's a very good question and it's one well worth pondering. And, and uh, let me give you a quote from John Wheeler just to balance okay. out the final one. <laughs> and it's even worse if, if possible. He said, well, here is my understanding of philosophers. They're like tin cans tied behind a car. They make a lot of noise. They don't serve any purpose. And they're always behind. <laughs> So it's not so much of a balance, after all. No, but so, so it is an interesting question. And um, my feeling is that, that they may not actually serve any particular purpose at this point. Now that neuroscience has flowered to the degree that it has and the psychological sciences are. One thing I think that it is useful to do, and this might be similar in physics or it might not, but you know, by and large, whether you're in cognitive science, psychology, or neuroscience, you really have a, a very vertical take on what you're doing. 
you know, you can expand a little bit, and if you're in the bathtub, you might read a New Yorker article on some aspect of neuroscience that's way out of your field. Right. But by and large, right. you have to go vertically, right. and, and you have to spend a lot of time getting the experiments right and getting things set up and so forth. And I feel that one of the things I can do, and I think there are some other philosophers who do this too, is we say, well, okay, when you've done all that experimental work, tell me what your results are, and I'll understand them because I put in enough time to try to make sense of things. And then I can do this nice thing of going horizontally. And it allows me sometimes to bring together or to synthesize in a way that you might not be able to do. Right. So, and, and one response to that is, isn't that just journalism? You know, how much better is that than journalism? And I think the answer is, well, a journalist probably can't spend most of her life studying and thinking about neuroscience and reading about neuroscience, and I basically have. Well, you have to have enough so, depth to make these connections, yeah. I guess, which is what you're saying. So I think th that you, you can say I'm just a highfalutin journalist or a cheerleader, as Colin McGinn says, but actually I think it does mean that I can pull things together in a way that can sometimes be useful. You see, I didn't mean to be attacking you as it happened. I was no, attacking no, no, your no. entire discipline, and I was, yeah. I was actually making an exception for you. But uh. Well, they think I'm attacking <laughs> them, too. And, 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 of course, to a degree, I am. I mean, I think that there are lots of things that philosophers can do, and some of them are, for example, exploring the interface between neuroscience and the law, and that can be useful. Um, and some of them, I think, are helping to keep the great books alive, and there is something to be said for that also. But I absolutely agree that there really isn't a separate field that can be where you can achieve some progress that's called philosophy of mind. Mm. Um, now, one of the things that people ask me at Genelia Farm is very like what you were asking. And they say, look, you know, we keep hearing from philosophers that they're going to save us from all of these conceptual problems that we have. Like what? And, and do you think that you're saving us from conceptual mistakes? And I said, you know, I really hate to diss my colleagues, but I don't think so. I don't see these big mistakes. Here's one mistake that apparently we all, we neuroscientists all make. We talk about the brain as falling asleep or as remembering or as seeing. And they go, tut, tut, it's not the brain that does those things, it's the person. And, and well, fine, fine, fine. Sure. But you know, we go on talking about that it's, it's, anyway. Yeah. And it's not a very big or a very interesting point. And recently a philosopher did say to me, but, but you know, we're really saving neuroscientists from making a lot, going off in a lot of bad directions by pointing this out. And I said, like, name one. Paul, are you there? I'm just wondering if the, oh, well, is that, are you picking up the dog? That's okay. Yeah, okay. So it's all part anyway. of the, I mean, if he, if he, if, if, if he if gets get very wild. vocal. Yeah, that, okay. <laughs> so, so my own feeling is that, that philosophers would like it to be true that they are, resolving all these conceptual tangles that the scientists get. But, you know, it's not really true. 
This is interesting because this gives me a, a segue into a primary thesis or a primary motivation, it seems to me, of, of the popular book, Touching a Nerve, that you wrote. This notion that it's not enough to just do something because it makes you feel good, because it makes you feel better. Uh, mm. uh, this notion that you want to believe in something because, oh, it's nice to believe in it. It's, uh, we all have that. We all have fears. Yeah. We all have desires yeah. and so forth. But when the stakes are sufficiently high, right. like for example, if somebody is suffering from some illness, or if somebody is uh, if somebody is diagnosed with some disease that needs a particular treatment, or if somebody has uh, one of their um, children has has some uh, cognitive disorder mm. or what have yes. you, um, most of us all of a sudden uh, don't just. Uh, don't just opt for going into a corner and believing something or wishing it away. We recognize, no, we actually yeah. have to we deal have with this. We have to deal with the facts. Right. And so this notion of uh, the world is filled with positive things and negative things, and we'd all be better off if we acted a little bit more like grown-ups. I'm simplifying a lot, but this, this, yeah. this is one aspect of the thrust behind your book that, look, it makes us feel uncomfortable to look at ourselves as this, uh, as a brain, as this you know, loosely put lump of meat that's, that, that's over here. And it's very confusing and it's very difficult, but that's just the way it is. And we'd be better off in accepting yeah. that and moving forwards. And, and by analogy, it seems uh, with the philosophers, I don't want to beat this to death, but with those, those particular individuals who are saying, no, there's some grand constructs up there because they're making some logical error because it really is, mm. uh, it, it really is, uh, you can't just associate when somebody's sleeping, there has to be a person, and therefore there's a mental state, and therefore that mental state has to be abstracted. It's almost like linguistical games that, that are going on. I think up. it is. Um, and so, I, th I think it is kind of wishful thinking. Like, we are useful. We are, you know, you, you're making conceptual errors, and I don't see it. Yeah. So, one very specific question. Um, you start off touching a nerve by demonstrating that this idea that the self is a manifestation of the brain mm. and this, this difficulty of, of identifying, mapping what we all feel ourselves to a neurophysiological perspective is hard for everyone. Yeah. And as an example, you point out, again, it seems like I'm beating up on philosophers in this, but you, 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 you point out uh, or you, uh, you highlight an anecdote of this right. one philosopher in a conference who gets up and screams, I hate the brain, I hate the brain, and then you speculate on what that might mean. Uh, my question is, uh, who is this guy? Do you want to tell me? I don't think I should. <laughs> you know, I, uh, it, part of me would like to, but I think it was such an embarrassingly stupid thing to say <laughs> that even though I would like to, I feel I just couldn't do okay, that. That's, that's yeah. probably best. But it is, I guess, the, the, the more substantive uh, <laughs> aspect of this is that this is a, a sentiment that cuts across all sorts of uh, lines. It cuts across yeah. educational levels, yeah. it cuts across vocations, it cuts across where you live in the world, it cuts yeah. across all, what yeah. your experience is. It's a very, very difficult thing for people to come to terms with because, uh, well, come to terms with is maybe begging the question depending on one's perspective, but it's a very difficult identification to make that what we consider to be ourselves this, this, this thing with desires and beliefs yeah. and, and, and memory and consciousness can actually be reduced to brain states. Or that it, yeah, it, it, I don't like to use the word reduce because people get very frightened by that word. Right. But, 
but that is all a manifestation, as you put it before. It's all a man manifestation right. of, of the brain itself. And if you damage the brain, you damage those functions. Um, and I think it is hard, although in a funny sort of way, I, the other thing I tried to convey in the book was that it's also very liberating. I mean, I think that realizing that, that your brain is a biological business and that it's not that different from a chimpanzee brain or even a rat brain, that there are very similar organizational principles and, and they have emotions like fear and rage and anxiety just like we do and they're probably mediated by very similar neurochemicals. I think it allows for that kind of identification with the biological universe. It's kind of cool, actually. Right. Um, and, and then the other part of it, too, I think, has to do with the recognition that sometimes we're too hard on ourselves. You know, we do a stupid thing when we're really, really tired, where we blow up at somebody, for example. And then understanding that, you know, biological organisms are kind of like that. I mean, it makes it easier to apologize and make amends and, and carry on. And then, of course, the same is true, I think, of certain kinds of, of changes in the brain. So I was explaining about my brother um, and how liberating it was for him to realize that There was he, a medical explanation. There was a medical that. explanation for his being so very, so very frontal. And I think even going through puberty, for example, you know, if ever there was an ex, uh, uh, if ever there was an argument for saying that the mind is a product of the brain, surely it's going through puberty, where all of a sudden, you know, you've got these change in hormone levels in the brain, and you start finding things interesting that you used to find odious, and you find certain behaviors you readily engage in that you would, couldn't imagine that you would before. You start thinking about certain things all the time, obsessively. So, I mean, what else could it be? Um, I mean, how else is estrogen and testosterone going to affect the mind except by <laughs> affecting the brain? Right. So um, I, I think it, it is kind of liberating and it makes you feel at home in the world in a certain sort of way. Yeah. And is that what, in terms of your, your motivation for writing this book, was it, was it more to spread that particular word? Was it to, yeah. to just apprise people of what's actually happening? Was it to, to paint a picture of, of some interesting developments and some of the fault lines? What, what, what were you trying to achieve? I think all of those things. I did particularly want to address the sort of anxiety that people have in the light of um, realizing that the brain is what it is. Um, and I did want to, to get across the idea that you don't necessarily just have to wallow in the fearfulness of it, that there is something really splendidly wonderful that you can behold by seeing that you are this wonderful biological organism. But I did also kind of want to bring people in to sort of see where things are and where they aren't. I mean, there are, there are lots of things that remain very much puzzling to us. And uh, I, I, I wanted to convey that as well. So all of those things seem to me to, to be worth talking about. And you know, I had written academic books before, 
that is books that were much more technical and really meant for uh, um, a slightly more narrow audience. And I really kind of felt motivated to, to you know, spread my wings a little bit here. What has the reaction been generally? You mentioned the, the, the critical review in the New York Review of Books. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but rather than say this review or that review, that's not really what I'm looking at. I'm looking yeah, yeah. At, at, a, at, a, at a broader based um, uh, a broader based response from people both in the community, mm -hmm. from people outside of the community. Uh, was there a sense of, well, finally somebody saying these things uh, to, to the general public or, 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 or were there critical comments? Or what, what, what was the response yeah. and did it surprise you at all? I was surprised that the response was so overwhelmingly positive and that the people who were writing in as more general reviewers as opposed to specialists loved it. Abigail Zuger, who's an MD who often writes for the New York Times, loved it. And she wrote uh, a really super review in the New York Times and she obviously really understood it. And Adam Gopnik oh. also uh, talked about it in um, the New Yorker. So I was very, very happy about that. And the specialist magazines like Nature and Science, I got really nice reviews there also. And um, so, so I, I think on balance it did quite well. And I guess at a, at a sort of popular level, maybe one index is that, you know, I went on the Colbert Report. Right. And How was that, by the way? Was that totally fun? threw me that I was asked at all. I mean, I, you can't imagine. I just was flabbergasted. So, of course, I said yes. And, uh, and it was so much fun. I don't know if you've seen I it. did. I saw oh, the clip. Yeah. I, didn't, I, I, I have no idea what you went through, but I saw the, it I saw the public amazing. version. It was amazing. I mean, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't talk to you in advance, so you right. really don't know what he's going to talk about. It, right. He comes in and he, to the green room and he says, you know, I'll be in character. Just remember that, and off he goes. Um, which is the whole point, of course. Which is the whole point. <laughs> and, and I just found it, it, it was really, really fun and, and enjoyable. And he, I think he hadn't heard the story of the voles and the fact that voles, prairie voles mate for life and that they have all these special array of oxytocin receptors and right. that, that seems to be an important part of the explanation. And so it was. it was. It was great fun. And I got a ton of email after that and a huge spike in books. So yeah. I think, you know, it, it, it kind of made people think a little bit about here's a very complex bit of behavior, bonding with a mate for life. Right. And yet it seems to have a very biological basis. Well, what else would it have? I mean, that's... Well, that, yes. that's what else but, would it but, have? But, 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 uh, again, these questions have to be put out there, at least in, yeah. the, in the public consciousness. Yeah. So that's really what I was asking, in, yeah. in fact, by the response, because academic colleagues will do one thing, yeah, and yeah, people yeah, in yeah. the New Yorker, and yeah, the New Yorker yeah, yeah. books, they'll do their thing. Yeah. But just a sense of, of whether or not it was appreciated, whether it resonated with people who weren't specialists, who would think, think twice about yeah. this to get a sense of, hey, what is really going on? I mean, I got, I got some email from people in the South who said, you know, I've been thinking that maybe something like this was true for a long time, but I didn't dare say anything, and I couldn't believe it when you said this. I was so relieved. Mm. Very interesting to me. But 
so that's another question I wanted to ask you about in terms of response. So Colbert was in character, as you say, yeah. and his character is very, uh, I guess I was going to say traditional, I'm not, by American very, standards, very whatever, conservative. conservative American very arch conservative. Right, yeah. and so you, uh, there is a sense of religious sensibilities being offended by this. Oh, yeah. um, did you find that you got a lot of negative response from people in their genuine character who were of that particular persuasion, or did that not happen? little bit. I got maybe three or four emails um, like that. But you know, one of the things I learned from an anthropologist who studies religion on the hoof is that a lot of people don't literally believe the sort of credo, <laughs> you know, that, that if you really ask them about what, what they think happens after they die, they don't actually think that there's some little thing that comes out of the top of their head and, you know, sifts up to heaven. Right. Um, but it's something that they participate in as part of a sort of community ideology. Right. And you, you mentioned this, uh, obviously, oh. in your book, and this is well known, that there are all these questions that have preoccupied people in societies for thousands of years. If oh, I die and, yeah. and I, I have a leg amputated, what happens what to my happens? body when yeah. I'm there? Does it, people knew that, that there was putrefaction of corpses. And so this oh, was, yeah. so this is, um, people I think were willing to be fast and furious with oh, yeah. uh, omitting all sorts of details. There. And of course, you know, Buddhists have not really believed anything quite like that by and large. Right. Um, and uh, so I, I think there's a, a lot of Asians actually really resonated with that part of the book and with the idea that you know religion doesn't need to involve um, a, a deity who's divine and sort of lives in paradise. It can just be a sort of way of living a life that makes sense in terms of community and decency and kindness and so forth. And and, and that really is kind of the Buddhist and the Confucian story. Right. Uh, and those are, you know, there's billions of people <laughs> whose religion is like that. The majority. Rather than like, you know, there's this old guy and, you know, he's up there on the cloud and so forth. Right. Yeah. So I want to talk about some of the social relevance of contemporary neuroscientific awareness, if you will. Yeah. Um, how does this apply to me if I'm, you mentioned, the law before, mm -hmm. aspect of ethics, aspects of morality, the resonance that it has with people who um, go about their lives doing all sorts of interesting things that don't happen to have any obvious overlap with neuroscience or cognitive science or what have you. Um, not just because they might think it's interesting, mm -hmm. but because they might think it's relevant on a, on a societal yeah. level. So here's, here's an example of the sort of thing that, that I'm thinking about. If I'm somebody listening to this and I say, well, hang on, you were talking about people who, uh, whose behavior can be explained by neurophysiological means. Somebody in puberty, well, of course something is happening. Hormones are raging mm. in the brain. If you have a difficult day and you blow up with somebody, maybe there's a neurophysiological tendency or explanation. And I might say, well, doesn't this just let people off the hook far too easily? That mm -hmm. no matter what people do, they can say, oh, well, it's not really me, you see. It's mm -hmm. actually my brain right, right, that, right. that's doing that. And so. Uh, there, I can imagine there are people who say, well, that's just going too far because you're, you're, you're allowing people to abdicate all responsibility for their, for their actions mm -hmm. and just mm -hmm. saying it's, it's inevitable, it's according to the laws of biochemistry that govern my brain. So how would you respond to that? Somebody well, saying? I think that that is an important thing to reflect on. 
And my view is something like this, that socialization, and this is not true only of human species, but of others, socialization involves certain parameters that, uh, or, or certain rules, if you like, or norms of behavior. And you violate those norms and you're pulled back in. You're pulled back in often by disapproval or punishment or what have you. And so if a young wolf, for example, fails to draw back when his playmate rolls over and exposes his throat, if he fails to draw back and goes for the throat, the other wolves are instantly there and they chase him off. Mm. And that's a, that's a very severe punishment for a wolf. So I think that, we, that an important part of socialization is, if you like, tuning up the reward system. And, and so that we can expect, not only as children, but as adults, that if we violate the norms or the social practices in a way that hurts other people, that there will be payback. And um, so that's part of the reason why I think Stephen Morse and other uh, jurists who think about the possible impact of neuroscience on the law are inclined to say that the impact may be at least at first, fairly minimal. Because the law really, the criminal law really is about social safety. And to a degree it's about retribution, but I'll get back to that. But it's really about social safety. So in a certain way, what we're concerned with in the criminal law is, is that person going to do it again? Right. Now, yeah, if you society. did something stupid, like released pigs from a pen while you were sleepwalking, well, that's maybe treatable so that you don't sleepwalk again. But if you were fully awake and planned over the years to run a Ponzi scheme, then you know we think that you are likely to do that again, and we put you in and we put you away. You don't have anybody in mind when you say that. Yes, do I not? <laughs> so, so I, I, so that's why I think the law is not going to change all that much now. Retribution, to a degree, is also figures into the law, and that's because if if those who are victimized by assault or by Ponzi schemers uh, do not see that punishment is meted out, they're very apt to take the law into their own hands. And of right. course, vigilante justice is very rough justice because people often don't know for sure whether they've got the right guy or not. But but maybe I could say playing devil's advocate. Yeah. I could say well. What's the justification for retribution? Because this person who committed this act, they, yeah. they had to commit this act. They were biologically conditioned or, or, or predisposed to commit this act. So it doesn't make any sense to be, to be talking about uh, retribution. Well, in a certain sense, you're right. That's why I said retribution, the retributive aspect of, of punishment is really very narrow. It's really to let the victim see that because otherwise they will take justice into their own hands. Okay, so, okay, so but, but fundamentally the criminal justice system is about social safety and social well-being. Okay. And so we are putting people away because we fully expect that they're liable to do it again. Um, and um, so it, in a way, when you look at the law that way, the law is not saying, you know, there must be no causality the law is just saying, okay, 
You weren't conditioned anyway, Mr. Madoff, to run a Ponzi scheme. You just did it. Right. And um, you were no more conditioned to do that than I am conditioned to say exactly what it is that I'm saying now. It's a choice. And, uh, and so you're going to be held responsible for your choice. And so I, I think that in actual fact, responsibility will not diminish very much. And I think in, in the context of schools and in context of socialization more generally, what we mostly really care about is that we can tune up the reward system so that you end up as an adult doing the appropriate and, 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 and the right thing. And very often those things involve judgment calls. And that's why sometimes morality is really hard. Does neuroscience have anything to say about morality, or not just neuroscience in particular, mm. but a deeper understanding of neuroscience vis-a-vis -vis evolutionary biology? You give all sorts of examples in your book of, again, how different, uh, different societies view moral decisions in different ways because mm -hmm. of their evolutionary history and because of what uh, predisposes or, or doesn't predispose their particular society to survive and, and all the rest of this. Is there a way that we could somehow ground our morality in, in science, as some people are trying to do? Well, sort of yes and no. I mean, I think that morality, that is the disposition to be social, is grounded in the behavior, in, in the circuitry for um, parent-offspring caring, parent-offspring bonding. I mean, it's a remarkable thing, in a way, from a genetic point of view that I will undertake all kinds of grief and difficulty and I commitment. will sacrifice right. all kinds of benefits for the offspring. Right. But really, what the way to think about it is that just as there is circuitry in the mother for her own safety and warmth and, and food and well-being, then that circuitry just changes a little bit so that it's as though the other is part of me. And, and that seems to be unique to mammals and probably birds, maybe some reptiles like alligators, and there may have been some dinosaurs that showed that as well. But we really see it in mammals. And we see this other thing in mammals, which is a change in genes that produces a change in circuitry and the subcortical structures, where a, the offspring makes a squealing sound, we feel pain. Right. Ooh, sorry, that was a racket. No. Um, yeah, that the, the, the offspring makes a squealing sound and we feel pain. The mother rat does too. The baby falls out of its nest and squeals. The mother feels pain. She instantly is motivated to do something. So I think that's the basic platform. Yeah. And then with small other genetic changes, the caring can expand. But you know, we know now that rats will care for others. We know that mice will take care of one another's babies. Right. And there's these sharing fairness experiments for chimpanzees oh, that you mentioned yeah. and so forth. And um, yes, Franz, I think, I think Duvall was way ahead of all of us on this. Mm. You know, his book, Good Natured, is I think that that was written in what the 1990s, the 90s, I guess. Yeah. I think it's one of the great moral texts of all times, um, and it really had a huge impact on how I thought about things. 
And so we are deeply social by nature. We can see this in, in very, very young children who don't like the fuzzy toy that behaves badly to the dog, but does like the fuzzy toy that's nice to the dog. These are very, very young children. Mm. So I think that it's all there. And then the motivation gets more complex, and the specific conventions and social practices of a group get picked up and learned by the child. So I think we do see across cultures a kind of very basic similarity of caring for one another and caring for offspring despite the fact that we often have interesting differences at, at a relatively superficial level of how we handle issues of justice or issues of marriage or what have you. I'd like to get into free will, if yeah. I may, because yeah. you just mentioned a little while ago that you have a choice to do something, Bertie Madoff, sorry, yeah. uh, whomever it was. Whoever it was that ran a Ponzi scheme, yes. Had a choice. Yeah. Uh, and we all... Uh, at least most of us, I would argue that virtually all of us in our everyday lives believe that. Uh, yeah. We're faced with innumerable choices within an hour as to yeah. what to do. But here's an argument that I've, uh, uh, I've heard addressed by lots of people like John Searle and so forth uh, about this issue that I found uh, particularly fascinating. And I didn't see it addressed quite head on in your book, so I'm going to ask okay. you about it now. So the argument goes something like this. Um, if I believe that my thoughts and feelings and desires uh, and all of that are manifestations of my brain uh, at any given moment, which I, as it happens, believe, uh, so I don't believe there's anything external, there's no soul, there's none of this, that, that my brain is the mind, my brain mm. causes my mind. And I believe, moreover, that however complicated and however difficult it is, that my mind, being physical stuff, responds to the laws of physics um, and, and scale that up in whatever way is appropriate, laws of chemistry. I can imagine all sorts of emergent structures, but you have these laws. So I have my brain in one particular state, again, however complicated it is that I can map out here. And then I have laws, and it's made of material stuff, and I have laws for these material things, which means that at, a, at another time, T prime, whatever, uh, my brain state is going to evolve according mm -hmm. to these laws. So that doesn't seem to me to give me any option, any, any opportunity to start talking about actually making a choice. It seems to me that according to that framework, um, the sense of, uh, of, of free will that I have is actually illusory. Mm -hmm. It actually, do you, do you see where I'm, where, I'm, where I'm going with this? So I think that I'm making a choice because I go into a bar right. and somebody says, do you want, do you, do you, what would you like? Mm -hmm. And I think to myself, well, do I want a beer or do I want a glass of wine? And there are these, these two options. But if you map all that, if it's possible right. to map all that, then right when I'm asked that question, I've got a brain that's like this. There's another state where... I, I then say, a few seconds later, I would sure. like a glass of wine, and, and the, the, the laws are, are deterministic that go from, uh, from this state to another state. Right. And so that means, if you believe those three things, I think that my, I can map my brain state accurately, uh, or rather the brain, the brain state reflects the mind, that there are laws that determine that, and those laws are deterministic. If you, it seems to me that if you accept those three things, then I don't actually have free will in going from here to there. That's my 
Uh, that's my question. Yeah. Well, it's a funny thing. I mean, the idea of free will as sort of uncaused choice really comes in with Descartes. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a before that, if you think about how Aristotle regarded choice or other people regarded choice, um, it was always um, to talk about the voluntary by way of contrast with what wasn't. So that if you are involuntarily intoxicated, for example, and you do something dreadful, then that wasn't a choice. Um, right. Or if you are insane, let's just use for sure. present purposes the legal definition of insanity, then you might not be held responsible. Right. But with Descartes, we get the idea that, first of all, there is this non-physical soul. And part of the reason that Descartes wants a non-physical soul is because he wants there to be choices that come about through sheer creation, right? No physical involvement. Right. Now, that link to free choice is kind of crazy. Why would you, why would you think that free choice has to consist of the creation from an uncaused condition. And so, so the idea that it's, it's got to be uncaused to be free is a very different way of looking at it. So how within sort of a normal, let's just talk for the moment about how, what do people mean when they talk about free choice? Right. Well, by and large, it is kind of the way Aristotle did. It's by contrast with not being voluntarily chosen. So for example, if I shove you and you fall over backwards, that wasn't a choice. Whereas if you sit there and so far as we know, you're not insane and you're not drunk and are made involuntarily drunk, and you say to me, well, you know, um, I, I think your book really is, is a lot of cod's wallop that we think of as a paradigm of free choice. Mm. In as much as, as you don't have OCD where you're constantly running about saying those sorts of things, right. you don't have Tourette's, you're not insane, you weren't pushed, and so on and so forth. Right. And that's as good as it gets, all right? So, so the voluntariness that a normal brain provides is the voluntariness of a well-functioning pathway between prefrontal structures of the cortex and subcortical structures. And that's as good as it gets. Let me give you an analogy. Someone might think that there's a real difference between being up and being down. And that down is absolutely that away. And we explain, no, actually not. It's towards the local center of gravity. Right. And they say, oh no, then there is no real downness. And we say, no, it's towards the center of gravity. And that's why you think that is down. And that's as good as it gets. And if you want the pure, absolute downness, well, it ain't going to happen because our universe doesn't work that way. 
And if you want absolutely pure Euclidean straight lines in our universe, it ain't going to happen. So, in a way, the, the voluntariness is pretty much as Aristotle, and hence as the current criminal law, describes it. Mm -hmm. Voluntary is the default condition. And if you want to convince me that it wasn't voluntary, there are some things you need to show that you have Tourette's or that you have, that you really are insane within the meaning of the law and so forth. So operationally. That's as good as it gets. And if that's not good enough, all I can say is, well, I'm very sorry, but you know, we're living in the real world and we kind of have to get on with it. And I'm not going to say to, to um, you know, my local cannibal or my local Ponzi schemer, well, you know, you don't have real free will because you're a causal machine. No, I'm going to say, look, you violated the law. You're going to have to stand trial and you're probably going to jail. End of story. That's as good as it gets. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, 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 uh. I wanted to ask you about eliminative uh, mm -hmm. materialism, and, yep. um, and and so maybe I'll just ask you to to define it and, and yeah. give me a sense of what it is, and then I have a few follow-up uh, questions about it. Okay. Well, Paul and I thought that we wanted to make a prediction, and the prediction was that as neuroscience progresses, there's likely to be changes in the sort of everyday psychology that we all use. And um, his own particular view about what would change was the propositional attitudes. Now let me explain what I mean by that. So if I say that I believe that you're wearing glasses, for example, that was understood by philosophers like Jerry Fodor and others uh, in the following way. There is a state of your brain, a belief, that stands in relation to a bit of language. You are wearing glasses. And that that's what a belief is. It's intrinsically and essentially and necessarily linguistic. Similarly for desires and hopes and so forth. So everything's mediated through language. Everything is mediated through language. And Paul said, you know, that can't possibly be right because we knew, for example, from the work of Lynn Nadell and, and John O'Keefe, that rats have this very complicated and very rich and usable map in their hippocampus that allows the rat to navigate its physical world. And so Paul, first we know they're, they're not using language. And we don't think they're using language. And Paul thought that their social world was probably navigated in the same way. They had a map, maybe not in the hippocampus, maybe somewhere else, a map, maybe not a three-dimensional map, maybe a 12-dimensional map that allowed them to recognize that others had, had a goal or that had an emotion and so forth. And so he proposed that maybe the propositional attitudes for nonverbal humans as well as nonverbal animals isn't accurate. And moreover, maybe a lot of what even those of us who have language, maybe a lot of our non-conscious processing or even some of our conscious processing, as with vision, is not propositional. It's not language-like. Right. And that was the nub of the thesis. Philosophers went berserk. 
And th their view was that we had said, A, that all folk psychology is wrong, and that we didn't believe that consciousness exists, which was not it's part of the sleep. It was yeah. crazy. <laughs> there was actually a guy at Rutgers who wrote um, the entry on consciousness for the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Philosophy and began with a sentence, the church ones, of course, don't believe consciousness exists. So I phoned him, I said, Brian, how can you say this? He said, well, you're an eliminativist. I said, but, but we actually have a theory about what consciousness involves. So why would we have such a theory if we didn't believe there was a phenomenon? Anyway. Um, talking about touching a nerve, by the way. Touching a nerve, yes. So, so I don't know why the reaction was so strong. I think it was very, it struck people as very surprising. And I think the other thing was that, you know, we were these nobodies writing out of Manitoba. Who are these nobodies to say such an extraordinary thing? So, so just formally, I mean, linguistically, if I want to parse this, this expression, I'm not a philosopher, I've never heard this before, and somebody says eliminative materialist, mm -hmm. uh, my understanding is the reason why those words are put together in that particular way is because there's a motivation uh, on behalf of people who subscribe to this, this view, uh, so described, to eliminate superfluous concepts or concepts mm -hmm. which they suspect will later be superfluous yeah. through a materialist perspective. Because yeah. it sounds, That's the, words, exactly right. the, the words sound like they mean, if you don't know anything about this, that you are actually eliminating materialism, which of course is not what, what no, <laughs> you're saying no, at all, no, but it's, no. it's being eliminative yeah. with, the pre yeah. with, the, with, the, with the axiomatic framework of materialism yeah. and saying that some of these things that we're now throwing around, these terms um, that, that some psychologists might be using today, 20 years from now, That's they right. might be regarded as actually not being very well-formed or That's appropriate right. descriptions of things yeah. um, if, because our, material, our understanding based upon materialism right. will, will render them uh, inappropriate. Yes, the, the neurobiology would replace some of these expressions. Now, we're, expressions like goal, probably not, but others, probably. But I, I think that we did not appreciate that we should have thought through using that description. Now the description was already in the public domain because Richard Rorty had used it mm. for something rather similar actually. And there we were, I mean Richard Rorty was a very famous philosopher at Princeton and there we were, these little nobodies in Manitoba. And I think, I think we felt that we had to connect with the conversation in an appropriate way. Now, looking back on it, I think we would not have used that expression. Mm, right, uh, I right. Well, because it caused, such, it, it caused such a firestorm. I think we would now say revisionary materialism, or, but, but that, uh, maybe that even. Well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, right? I mean, causing a firestorm, maybe that's a good thing. I mean, look, it seems yeah. to me, again, as a complete outsider, it seems to me that many of these ideas that these two nobodies from Manitoba had are very, very well received and well welcomed within not just the neurophysiological cognitive science community proper, but also the philosophical community. As within well. some of the, some parts of the philosophical community. So it seems like a good strategy to yeah. me. 
<laughs> well, it's hard to know um, because some because I think it could have we could have come up with a better name if we'd really thought about it. Although I have to say, in the forty years since, I don't think we have come up with well, anything that's, better. That's, so. that's a good indication that it wasn't wasn't yeah. bad. Anyway. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Let's yeah. talk a little bit about consciousness. Yeah, yeah. Um, because uh, clearly. Uh, it is not your position that consciousness does not exist. Clearly not. <laughs> but, uh, but what is your position on consciousness? What do you what do you think it is? You talk a little bit about it and, yeah. and touching a nerve, and this is obviously this is the holy grail, right? Of trying to get a sense, it or at least it's good. a holy grail. Yeah, of, yeah, of, I agree. Of, under, of understanding uh, uh, things from a cognitive science perspective. So, uh, give me a sense of of your belief of. The best explanation we have now of, of mm. what consciousness is, and some speculations as to what you think we might be able to find out in the future. Yeah, I'll try. Um, first of all, I think one of the things we have learned from neuroscience is that there is no single place in the brain where you can point to and say, this is the center for consciousness. It clearly involves distributed networks and not just cortical networks. Probably the crucial parts of the story are in the brainstem, which has been known for a long time that that was a crucial part of the story, and the thalamus, especially this sort of donut-like structure in the middle of the thalamus. Right, so let's, let's back up a little yeah. bit because not, not everybody knows these terms because not everybody uh, yes, operates I'm, with right. brains with your, with, okay. with your hands. So by, 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 cortical, uh, by cortical links, you presumably mean links from one area of the cortex, this little shell over here to another, right? Is that, is that what you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, that's right. So, so the cortex is kind of like a rind on the orange. And there are vast connections um, from one area to the other. And in fact, we think now that the cortex has a sort of small world organization. And what that means is like it's six degrees of separation that by virtue of this small world uh, organization, there are hubs, and I can then, if I'm a neuron here, I can connect to my hub guy who can connect to this, to this, to this, very fast. And that that's one of the ways that we manage to handle things like shifts in attention and processing very quickly. So that's the cortex, but the older structures are all below cortex, and they are in a way the critical structures for motivation, feelings, emotions, um, self-control is also very important. Um, all of the reward system learning depends on those lower structures. And then below that, are the kind of really, really ancient but absolutely fundamental structures in the brainstem that kind of goes from the back of your head down into your spinal cord. And in those structures, there are regions that are important for keeping you alert and, and functioning so that if you have a stroke and those structures are damaged, you'll be un, in unrecoverable coma. And those structures are also important for turning things down so you go to sleep at night and changing so that you wake up in the morning and so forth. Now, the way it's beginning to look for consciousness is that the structures in the brain stem and then the structures in the subcortical areas and then cortex all have to be sort of coordinated in a very particular way mm -hmm. in order for you to be aware. And the, so there's, 
you can think of it this way, or at least this is how I now think of it, but it could change in five sure. years. That there, there's a kind of network that provides a background that basically says, okay, you're conscious, be aware, because stuff is going on. Then the particular things that you're aware of, like a sound of a dog barking, a smell of food burning, a touch in your, uh, on your leg, a pain in your knee, or a visual scene, those are all switches that probably happen at the cortical level. So there's this kind of background, be alert, be awake, stuff is happening. And then there's the particular contents of which you are aware. And so this would, it seems to me, because we've, we've had the opportunity to talk to some other people, uh, it seems to me this would mesh quite well with some of the other things that we've learned. For example, uh, there was somebody I spoke to the other day who studies people in the vegetative state, yes. in minimally conscious yes. states. And my understanding is that for many of these people, there, there are activities that are happening yes. exactly as you're saying. So, there's, so I guess the explanation for them would be they're not conscious, yes. but there are, there are activities happening at this level, but there isn't that link that's being made. Is that, is that a fair? It's sort of like that. Now, there may be differences between uh, individual patients, but uh, Nick Schiff at Columbia um, studies vegetative state. And here's an example of a person who is in vegetative state but might be woken up. Their cortex is normal. So you scan them, there's no big holes, there's no great shrinkage, it looks normal. But their subcortical structure in, the in a region called the thalamus, it's like it's in permanent sleep. Mm. And if you manage to wake it up, for example, by electrically stimulating it, or in one case by so giving it some by giving it a actually. medication, it was Ambien, actually, yeah. funnily enough. Yeah. Um, and the man woke up. So it was as though it had got locked into a state of very deep sleep. And so for years, this was the fireman, um, for years just sat in a chair. And then one day after they had given him a drug that obviously had uh, or apparently had some effect on this inner part of the thalamus, it was like it sort of reset the sleep-wake clock and he woke up. But his cortex was normal. Now Terry Schiavo, which is a very different case of vegetative state, when you looked at her scan, you could see that her cortex was not normal. There had been tremendous damage, huge areas of shrinkage and so forth. And so that was a really different kind of case. But, but, but your background question was, does this story that I'm telling about the linkage between brainstem and thalamus and cortex fit with the neurological data on coma and vegetative state? And the answer is it seems to. And it seems to fit very well with what we know about deep sleep and dreaming and waking. Right. So, so sleep is a, somehow is a mechanism or is related to this idea of linking these, these systems, as you said, turning, turning yeah, them on it, somehow. It, it, so within this region of the thalamus, there are, it, it's kind of like a, a little donut inside the thalamus. Now the thalamus is almost like a little brain within a brain. And it, within this donut, there are cells, neurons that project all over cortex. And when you're awake, 
they have a very specific pattern of firing. This was discovered by a great Canadian neuroscientist, Murchisteriad at Laval. And um, that very specific pattern changes during sleep. And so what we think happens is that everything, so to speak, shuts down. Right. And, uh, and you go into a very different state so that you're not processing information from the extremities and so on. And it gives the brain, it now appears, it gives the brain a chance to house clean. The brain doesn't have a lymphatic system like the rest right. of your body does. Right. Right. And so it has to house clean. And it looks like all brains, from fruit flies to slugs to us, there is a period where everything just kind of goes into a slow state and there's a, an opportunity to house clean to get rid of all of these used up proteins and prepare for the next day. Deeply biological thing, sure. <laughs> sleep. Sure. Um, I, I just lost my train of thought. Um, I, so what the, the second part of my long-winded question was about speculating the future. So this is our understanding right, right. right now. Um, if you, and I understand that this is, this is now the, the heavily speculative part of the conversation, so you shouldn't, you shouldn't, feel, uh, you shouldn't feel obliged to, you shouldn't feel concerned about possibly saying something outlandish. No one's going to come back to you in okay. five years okay. and say, Pat, what's the matter with you? What you said today, <laughs> okay. uh, what you said five years ago didn't, didn't work. But um, if I were to ask you a very specific question, like, will we have broadly defined, however you'd like mm -hmm. to define it, a coherent, uh, reasonably complete understanding of consciousness. Um, when uh, will we have that at, at some point? And if so, when would you speculate that it, made, it might occur? However, you I think we'll get the basic story. Absolutely. And when do you think uh, we'll? We'll, well get that? I don't know. I mean, you know, there are many, many fundamental open questions in neuroscience. So it's very, very hard to predict. But yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't see any real reason. It, I mean, as John Searle often puts it, it's a biological phenomenon. <laughs> right. So predicting that you'll never know sure. seems to me to be a very rash prediction. Uh, I, I would expect we'll, we'll understand a lot of it, but bear in mind that the word understand, you know, it means that w we might understand part of it or it comes in degrees. So, sure. you know. I said broadly defined, so yeah, you can. Yeah, can. <laughs> okay. I mean, you know, it's so interesting that, that w we don't really understand in a complete way yet how genes work. But, you know, I mean, consider the progress. Okay. And I think we'll understand a huge amount. Uh, about what isn't really involved in consciousness. And, you know, every sort of five years, you see these new techniques and new ways of addressing very fundamental questions about brain function. And because it's such a popular research area, there's so many people who are involved. And yeah. So many people yeah. who are coming in, and technology is improving. I think that's right. So if I were an omniscient being, <laughs> and I, which sadly I'm, I'm not. If I were an omniscient being um, and I could answer any one or two questions of mm. yours with respect to this area, um, what would you ask me? Well, yeah, uh, I guess 
one of the things that's still very much out of our ken it has to do with the basic principles on which brains function. So if you think about the motor system, it doesn't look like, I mean, and the motor system is critical because that's where evolution has a chance to act. Right. <laughs> so it's all about your behavior. Your, it can't directly act on your perceptual systems. It can only act on the degree to which your perceptual systems inform your behavior so that you can behave in such a way as to survive. Now it looks like the motor system is not going to be understood in terms of representations. We think of vision as representational. So we think of, of my brain right now as representing your blue shirt or representing you as wearing spectacles so that there is kind of a mapping between inside and outside. But we don't think of the nervous system, I mean of the motor system as acting that way. Mm. We think of the motor system as kind of a dynamical system. So, so one of the deep puzzles is, if we think of vision as representational, how is it going to fit with this non-represent, I mean, how in the evolution of nervous systems does that work? Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's going to sound a little esoteric, but it's kind of like how, I want to know how, you know, maybe we're thinking about vision in the wrong way. Maybe. Yeah, you know, when we chat with each other, we can say, I represent your blue shirt. But if we think about it in terms of the neurobiological perspective, maybe, maybe it's not all about representations. Mm. I don't know. So anyway, that's one of, the, one of the fundamental things. The other fundamental thing we really don't understand about brains is if understanding something or perceiving something or making a decision depends on networks distributed across the brain. How is that coordinated? Because you don't have networks for every single little dinky winky thing that you perceive. Right. So, so how, does, how do you get so much out of just that when it, uh, and how do those networks form to begin with? And why those networks form? and not other ones? Uh, and yeah, and so, so that we don't understand. How is this all working without a coordinator? And so the coordination problem of not just across cortex, but across cortex, subcortex, and the rest of your brain. And that's a deep principle. And that's why it's often helpful to look at simple animals, to look at, at fruit flies, to look at slugs, to look at mice, who aren't all that simple. But, but if we can figure out some of the basic principles in simple animals, almost certainly evolution has conserved those and then elaborated on them, and we can get closer. And if we get closer in the case of humans, then we have a shot at understanding things like schizophrenia and autism and so forth. And, you know, those are huge. And when you think that over their lifetime, roughly 1% of the population will have had 
a brush with or uh, more than a brush with schizophrenia. I mean, it's, it's huge. Yeah. And so I do believe we'll get there, but it's not easy. Anything I haven't asked? Anything you'd like mm -hmm. to comment on? That was great. Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Okay, uh, thank you. No, it was really a wonderful interview. Um, yeah, no, you, you were very um, uh, well informed and asked great, great questions. I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Philosophy, Volume 1, along with separate discussions with James Robert Brown. Charles Foster, Alfred Mealy, and Scott Soames. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com, while those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.